First Corinthians chapter seven. This is a natural break in First Corinthians. Uh, the first six chapters deal with the known, reported sins that were in the church. They were just common knowledge, not only for those inside the church, but those outside the church. They knew the sins and the practices of the, of the Christian believers that made up the church of Corinth. And Paul addressed that in the first six chapters of 1 Corinthians. But from chapter 7, throughout the rest of the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 16, Paul is now addressing the issues that they wrote to him about in a letter. You've got to remember, we have 1 Corinthians, and sometimes if we don't study, we will think that <clears throat> this is the very first communication that Paul had with the church at Corinth. And of course it isn't. Matter of fact, there were uh, at least one other letter that Paul had written to uh, the Corinthian church prior to this letter. But for whatever reason, these these first and second Corinthians are the letter that that God chose to be included in the canon of Scripture that he put his authority on and his inspiration in. OK, uh, so the first letter that he wrote, he wrote addressing some things they wrote back to him in a letter and they sent it back. The reports came back and Paul now is addressing them in reference to this particular letter. I want you to look in uh, chapter seven, verse one, how, how the chapter begins. Now, look what he says. He says about the things you wrote. So right there, it kind of nails it down that they have written him a letter. Remember, once again, it's a natural break right here in this particular book. The first six chapters deal with the known reported sins in the church. And Paul addressed those. Throughout the rest of this letter, he's going to be addressing the questions and the, the topics that were in the letter that they wrote to Paul. Asking about a lot of different particular areas. As a matter of fact, you see, once again, about the things that you wrote in verse number one. What are some of the things that they wrote about uh, from chapter seven throughout chapter number 16? And these are the things we're going to be studying in the weeks to come. But one of the things they asked him about was marriage. Another thing they asked him about was divorce. Another thing they asked about was food that was offered up to idols. And we see that in chapter eight. They asked about spiritual gifts in chapter 12. They ask about the resurrection in chapter 15. They ask about the offerings for the Jews in chapter number 16. Matter of fact, as Paul is writing throughout the rest of this book, from chapter 7 throughout chapter number 16, in chapter 7 he's talking and giving them instruction pertaining to the Christian marriage. In chapters 8 and 10, or 8, 9, and 10, those three chapters, he's dealing with the Christian's freedom that they have. And all these are in response to the questions that they had asked Paul. In chapters 11 through 14, 11, 12, 13, and 14, he's dealing with the topic of public worship. How do we worship together publicly? He deals four chapters on how they are to worship as a church. In chapter 15 and 16, he deals with the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and the resurrection of our bodies and, and so forth and so on. So there you see now he is addressing some of the concerns, some of the questions, some of the issues that the church had that they wrote and asked Paul about. Now, let me put in a disclaimer. Chapter 7, Paul is addressing the topic of marriage. He's talking about a divorce. But I want you to understand that Paul is not given an exhaustive conclusion to the whole matter. He, he is not given the theology of marriage in one chapter. You gotta, listen, the way, how, by the way, how do we, 
get this wire out of the way or I will trip on that. How do we, how do we study scripture? What's the way? What's the best way, the only way to accurately interpret scripture? It's not what you believe it says. How do we do that? We compare scripture with scripture. The best commentary that has ever been written on the Bible is the Bible itself. Hello? So if you're going to study marriage, you cannot take just one chapter in the verse or or in the book. You cannot take one verse in the chapter and build a doctrine on it. Matter of fact, there are people that do that. You know what we call them? We call them the occults. They take one chapter or one verse or one thought and they'll take that and they'll run with it. And they'll build an entire false doctrine based off a grain of truth. But the problem that we get into is when we start interpreting Scripture in our own perspective. What we believe it's teaching. That's wrong. It doesn't matter. What we need to do is compare Scripture with Scripture. So with that being said, Paul is not given the theology of marriage in this one chapter. Nor is he given the theology of divorce in this one chapter. You must study the entire Bible together collectively and dig out those subjects. Now, let me say this, for, just for those that, that may not know. One of the best study Bibles that you will ever get your hands on that will help you study that way, chapter with, or scripture with scripture, it's called the Thompson Chain Reference Bible, Okay. Now, in the Thompson Thompson Chain Reference Bible, there are no commentary notes. Okay? It's not Dr. MacArthur. It's not the MacArthur Study Bible. It's not Hank Hanegraaff's Study Bible. It's not um, Charles Stanley has a Study Bible. Um, Adrian Rogers has a, a Study Bible. It's not all these different men and their thoughts about what... Now, many of them are correct in their views. Some I disagree. But the Thompson Chain Reference Bible is this. It runs a chain of Scripture references from Genesis to Revelation on every particular topic. So I just throw that out there for you uh, that may not know exactly, uh, you know, that may need a, a little tool to help you in studying. But a good reference Bible is key. Okay, in studying scripture, it's very important that you have a tremendously good reference Bible more than a Bible with a commentary in it. Okay, you you know what I'm I mean, really, I could I could elaborate my views on a particular passage of scripture. And that's okay as long as they're lining up with Scripture. There's some great comments. I'm not against commentaries. There's some great commentaries out there. But I'm just saying you got to be careful you got to be careful. Listen, just because it's on the Internet doesn't mean it's true. Do we understand that? <laughs> Do we understand that? A lot of people think, boy, I got this off the Internet. It has to be true. Anybody can post anything. We're well aware of that today, right? So you just got to be careful what you read. I've had people come and argue Scripture with me, and they'll say, I found this on the Internet. Now look what that says. Well, that's just, that's just somebody's opinion, okay? Scripture with Scripture. It's how we accurately interpret and rightly divide the Word of God, okay? So, I'm putting in a disclaimer. We're going to cover chapter 7. But I am not going to give you the exhaustive theology on the biblical marriage. We're just going to stay with the book, okay? All right? Is that fair? 
So don't hold me in judgment. Oh, I don't know. There's no Jesus said, and they said over that. I'm, I'm not running all that. This is not a study on what the Bible says about marriage and divorce. I'm just putting out some disclaimers so we're all on the same page. I'm just going to share with you what Paul is dressing in chapter 7. Is that okay? Are we all right with that? Okay. So with that being said, let's look at some of these questions that the church is addressing the Apostle Paul in the letter that they wrote to him. Now, there are actually, as Paul is addressing some of the questions that these concerned Christians have in the church at Corinth, he gives his counsel to three different groups of believers. Now, remember, he's writing a letter back to the church. So he is address, addressing Christians, okay? The very first group that he is addressing, which is probably the only group that we're going to deal with today, I'm not even sure we're going to get completely through this particular group, but it's verse 1 down through verse number 11. And in this particular group, Paul is addressing Christians that are married to Christians, okay? Christians that are married to Christians. In chapter 12 through, um, or I'm sorry, cha- or verse 12 through verse number 24 of the same chapter, Paul is addressing Christians that are married to non-Christians. And then his third appeal, his third counsel of, of course, to unmarried Christians in verse 25 through 40. Now you can see this extremely long chapter dealing with a lot of different areas, and, and we're not going to get through it real quickly, but we are going to begin talking about his counsel to Christians that are married to Christians in reference to their question, which, which apparently is a question about celibacy. Whether it's spiritual to not be married, more spiritual to not be married than it is to be married. Okay? Apparently it's a question that is related to celibacy and he is addressing that particular area in in chapter 7 verse 1 down through verse number 11. So with that being the natural division of the chapter verse down to verse 11, let's just read chapter 7 verse 1 down through verse number 11. Paul says, about the things you wrote, it is good for a man not to have relations with a woman. But because of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman should have her own husband. A husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise a wife to her husband. A wife does not have authority over her own body, but her husband does. Equally, a husband does not have authority over his own body, but his wife does. Do not deprive one another. Except when you agree for a time to devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again. Otherwise, Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all people were just like me. But each has his own gift from God. One this and another that. Verse 8. I say to the unmarried and to widows, it is not good for them if they remain, or I'm sorry, it is good for them if they remain as I am. But if they do not have self-control, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with desire. Verse 10, I command the married, not I, but the Lord, a wife is not to leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. 
And a husband is not to leave his wife. And we're going to stop right there. And, and there's more that he's talking about marriage throughout the rest of the chapter. But in these particular verses, verse 1 down through verse number 11, Paul is addressing the Christians that are married to Christians. Now, apparently the question of celibacy came up to the Apostle Paul in the letter that the church at Corinth had written to him. And of course, celibacy is just certainly just remaining single, not getting married at all. And, and, um, but I want you to look, uh, I like uh, what Dr. Kenneth Wurst, which has the Wurst word study, is a, a great study help that, that will help you with studying the, the original language of the scripture. I like how he translates Paul's reply when he says, it is perfectly proper and honorable and morally benefiting for a man to live in strict celibacy. And that's what Paul was saying. I wish that all men would be like I am. Now, let's give a little history on the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, there's a, between theologians, there's somewhat of a debate on whether he was married or whether he not got, had not gotten married at all. Whether he was married and his wife apparently had passed away, he was a widower. Help me differentiate, differentiate there between the gender. He was a widower and he had not remarried and he went on about celibate in his life given his life to the Lord. That's one view of the Apostle Paul. There's another view of the Apostle Paul that says that he was never married at all. That he was just a eunuch, if you will. And Jesus talks a little bit about a eunuch, and I'll go there in just a moment and and bring out that teaching for you. But I believe, through studying Scripture, not necessarily, and by the way, this is not an affirmative, Okay, I cannot rightly stand here and tell you this is what happened. This is just not an affirmative. Okay, it's not divine inspiration from God. It's just my belief that Paul was married and that his wife had been or had died and he is a widower. And the reason I say that is because you go back and you study who Saul of Tarsus was. You remember before he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, you'll find that he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. As a matter of fact, we believe that Paul sat in his old man as Saul of Tarsus, that he sat in the seventh seat of the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin were the most religious of all the religious of all the the Jews of that day. One of the qualifications to be there was that you had to be married and have your household in order. And he sat in the seventh seat of the Sanhedrin. Now, there's nothing in Scripture that tells us that Paul was married and his wife died and he's now a widower. Except for a reference, something like this, when Paul says, I wish that all men were like me. In other words, I'm not committed to a wife at that particular moment in his life. I've devoted my entire life to following the Lord and doing exactly whatever it is. You choose whichever end of the spectrum you want to be on. He was never married and he never was had, had a wife and, and that's okay if you take that view it's not going to keep you out of heaven or you take the other view that he was married because of his religious stand as a as a pharisee of the pharisees and the position that he had as Saul of Tarsus that he had to be married in order to meet the requirements of of being a a, 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 a being a, in, on the Sanhedrin and so therefore the, possibly his wife died the, the point is the point is it's not that important okay or Jesus would have put it in the book for us right what I want you to see 
is that in this state, however he got there, in this particular state, Paul is saying, I wish that all men were like me. That they did not have necessarily the concerns for a spouse and a family. That they could be fully devoted to the call of God on their life and just go and do whatever. By the way, does having concerns as a Christian father and a Christian husband, having those concerns of of raising your family and being responsible for, for your family and caring for your family and providing for your family, does all of that factor into your decisions as far as going and doing what God wants you to do? It's a common sense question. Sure it does. Yeah, it does. I mean, listen, there's things probably that I would take off and launch and do right now if I didn't have a wife and children. But they need me. I keep telling myself that. I'll believe that one of these days, you know. They need me. I'm responsible to them. I've got to provide food for the table. I've got to provide a a house for them to live in. I've got to care for them. I've got to be there with them. I cannot just leave and travel the world and go on mission trips and go to the other side of the world for, for three years and do mission work and just leave my... That would be an irresponsible father for, for an extended long period of time. Now I realize we got military to do deployments and that's fine. I'm not saying that that's, that you're bad for that. That's part of your job. But what I am saying is this, that it brings concerns to the table when I'm making decisions about directions that I need to be going. And of course, the Lord certainly understands that because he gives us requirements in his word on how a Christian husband and a father, how they're to care for their family. Okay. So you see the, the kind of the, the tug there. Paul had none of those concerns. I mean, he's just taking off through Asia Minor and he's just sharing the gospel and he's going here and he's going there and he's landing here. And, and, and he does, listen, he puts himself on a, on a boat and, and they have a tremendous shipwreck and, and, and he floats ashore on a board. Now, he, and he was in bondage and a prisoner at that particular moment. I believe Paul would have kept himself out of those situations had he had a family that he had to care for that depended on him. Correct? So you kind of see that the, the situation. That's why Paul says, I wish it all men were like I were. We're just all free to go and just do whatever it is that the Lord wants us to do. So we see what he's saying here in verses 1. As you wrote, or about the things you wrote, it's good for man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of sexual immorality or fornication, each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband. A husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise a wife to her husband. I want you to look very quickly down at verse number 6. It says in uh, the latter part of verse number 5, it says, They're to come together again, and otherwise Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Verse 6, I say this as a con- concession, not as a command. I wish that all people were just like me, uh, but each has his own gift. That's what I'm talking about where Paul says, I wish that all people were just like me. But each has his own gift. His own gift of what? On whether he is celibate or not. On whether he's going to remain a eunuch or not. Okay? Let's go back and look what Jesus had to say about that. In Matthew chapter number 19. Turn there in your Bibles with me. Matthew chapter number 19. Matthew chapter number 19. And here we're looking at what Jesus has to say about being a eunuch. Now what's a eunuch? One who is celibate, right? One who is not being involved in sexual relations with a wife. Look at here, what, what Jesus says in verse number 11. Now, I find this kind of, um, actually he starts in verse number 7. 
Uh, says that why then they ask him, did Moses command us to give divorce? He's talking about divorce and what have you and marriage. And he comes to verse number 11. But he told them, not everyone can accept this saying for only those that it has been given. Verse 12, for there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb. There are eunuchs who were made by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves that way because of the kingdom of heaven. Now, there's Jesus mentions three different types of eunuchs here. Three different types of, of individuals that are celibate. Okay? The first one he gives in verse number 12, for there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb. Apparently, it's just God's will for that individual to be remain celibate. Okay? And devote his whole life to, to the ministry, to following God, and what have you, or whatever the case may be. They're just born that way, all right? And apparently it must be the will of God for that to take place. And then there are eunuchs who were made by men. That would be like me appointing Sean. Sean, from now on you're celibate, okay? I've appointed that to you, all right? And there are religious religions out there that appoint men for whatever reason and whatever's taking place in the church or in their life or whatever, they appoint them to be celibate. And then there are those that are eunuchs who have made themselves that way because of the kingdom of heaven. These are the individuals that said, you know what? From this moment on, I'm going to remain celibate. I am just going to devote myself to the... I can't help but think that the last one is where the Apostle Paul was. He had just chosen to remain that way the rest of, the day, rest of his days. Okay? But anyhow, there you see the three teachings. And, and apparently what, what, what Paul is saying in verses 6 and verse number 7, especially when he says the latter part of verse 7, but each has his own gift from God, one this and another that, apparently is given reference back to Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 19 that I just read to you, verse 10 down through verse number 12. But I want you to pay attention to what God says in his word. He says it's not good that man should be alone in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18. So therefore, that's generally true for for, for most men, okay? For most ladies, for most individuals, for most people. But there are some that God has chosen from birth. There are some that have chosen it for themselves. And according to Jesus, there are some where they've been appointed. But let me say this. The singleness and the celibacy of an individual is not sub-spiritual, nor is it super spiritual, okay? It doesn't put one on a higher or lower plane. If one remains celibate and someone else decides to get married and the marriage is consummated on the wedding night, it doesn't mean that the one that remains celibate is super spiritual and the one who consummated his marriage vows to his bride now is sub-spiritual. That does not meet the qualifications on whether an individual is spiritual or not. That's really the point that Paul is trying to nail out through this entire chapter about marriage. Okay? It's not that you're on a higher plane because you have chosen to remain celibate. Nor are you on a lower plane because God has chosen you to remain celibate or to be a eunuch. I mean, there are some folks that, that they're just single all, the, all their lives. You know, I've got a sister that's 43 years old that's never been married. And I don't know all the reasons, and she has some questions, but for whatever reason, she has never married. She's never had a, you know, 
she's had just a couple relationships, I mean, as far as dating guys, but nothing just ever really worked out. And so she just goes on enjoying life. I mean, she just pours her life into her kids, and she's a music teacher at a middle school and, and has done that for 20 years, right at something like that. Help me out right there. For, you know, for a long time, ever right out of college, she went to Morris Hill College and, and right out of college, went straight into teaching, been at the same school or same, same school system teaching for all those years. But for whatever reason, God just hasn't brought a man into her life for, for marriage. Does that make her sub spiritual? No. Nor does it make someone that chose to be celibate super spiritual. And let your minds go and you'll know there's people in our world today that claim that they're super spiritual because they're celibate. And that, that's a tremendous Greek word for that called hogwash. Well, you're, you're, it's not a higher or lower plane there. And that's what Paul is addressing. That's really the main thrust of this, of this important passage, the, the question that he's trying to, to answer. But I want to jump back up to verse number two. Look what he says. He says, each man, I like this part, notice each man should have his own wife. And each woman woman, should have what? Her own husband. With that verse... I believe God puts to rest two thoughts. Number one, God is against polygamy. It's one man and one woman. Hello? And it has been since the beginning. I know it's not politically correct. Has been one man, one woman. It has been that way since the beginning. So he's put to rest... The doctrine of polygamy, he does not endorse that, nor does he approve that, nor will he accept that. So any of you guys that were kind of thinking about adding one more, it's not of God, okay? (laughs) Nor, nor does God approve homosexuality. It's one man and one woman. Hello? And it has been... Since the beginning. Matter of fact, in Romans chapter number 1, that's where God says through the Apostle Paul, inspired of, 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 uh, by God through the Apostle Paul, that, that that's an abomination. Homosexuality is an abomination in the sight of God. I mean, that's just like throwing God's creation back in his face. and That's an abomination to God. Right? And I know we're living in a day where The homosexual movement and the lesbian lifestyle is being promoted on sitcoms and in Hollywood. And and that lifestyle is being embraced. And unfortunately, we're having teenagers that are playing around with that. Let let me say, that is not right. Period. It's an abomination in the sight of God. And I know they're going to say, but pastor, you got to be tolerant. I got another Greek word for that. Hogwash. God's word says it's wrong, it's wrong. Are you going to be tolerant? God's word says that killing each other is wrong. Well, let them try it. Just let them play around with it. Let them dibble-dabble around with murder and just let them find their own way. 
Are you going to encourage your child to do that? And of course, none of you are going to encourage your child to do the other either, uh, hopefully. But I, I'm arguing the one that says, just be tolerant. Let them kind of fill it out and find their own way and they'll, they'll land where... Uh, baloney! Come on, guys. So I believe we can see here, God says there's one man and he should have his own wife. Listen, God created Adam and Eve. He did not create Adam and Steve. Hello? Adam and Eve. One man, one woman. So here we put to rest the entire doctrine of, 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 of polygamy where, where the occults. Wow, I'd like to say some more stuff right here. It seems like in our day, especially with, and by the way, he's out now, so I can say it. Especially with the running of a presidential candidate that we had that was a Mormon by faith. And our whole society was embracing his, his religion and, and saying, you know what? He's a family man. Why, if you're a Mormon, you have to be a family man. Six or eight of them. Hello? Guys, we gotta get back to this book. Hello? We gotta, we gotta quit just accepting every little smooth talking, good looking somebody the hell is it? I'm sorry. Uh, Thank you, Wayne. He's holding up his watch. We gotta quit accepting every good looking, smooth talking individual that impresses the, the nation with his smooth talk and his charisma. And we've gotta, what does God say about that? Amen? Just let me say this. Victory Church will be a church that's going to stand on this book. If it harleps the devil, we're going to make a stand on this. And there's some things we are going to accept if they're accepted in God's book. And there's some things we will not accept if it's not accepted in God's book. Hello? That's our stand. We stand on the inspired, infallible, inerrant word of God. Period. By the way, I just had a thought. Whenever we built on our, or remodeled our auditorium, we built that platform and under that platform and all the guys that were there that Saturday, underneath that platform, right under where the pulpit rested, we got a Bible out of my office and we brought it in there and we all signed it and we said, we will build Victory Church on the Word of God. And we built a shelf. Brother Darrell built us a shelf. We put that right underneath our pulpit and we all held hands and we all signed that covenant and that vow with each other that we would build our church on the Word of God and we put it right under there physically. It's there. One thought. When we move out of that building, I got to get that Bible. Okay? Whatever we got to do, we're going to get that Bible because I want that to go into our next building and we're going to get more men and women and whoever wants to sign it to sign it. We're going to put that Bible right under our platform once again. So as we rush through this whole getting out of there by June, somebody help me to remember to get our Bible out of there. Okay? All right? All right, guys. I didn't even get... I didn't even really get started in verse 1 through 11. But I got to stop. It's 10, 15. Okay? You study this chapter. And matter of fact, I want to encourage you to study it with a good reference Bible. And just a reference Bible is it's just a Bible that has the, either the center column references and it has a little A beside it and it says, look at this verse and that verse and what have you. Run those references. A good reference Bible will help you get a good understanding. Not just 
one little subject and one little thought and one little, but run references and dig out, compare scripture with scripture and get the full meaning of what God's word is teaching on a particular subject. Okay. I've got to stop right there. We'll pick up right there next Sunday morning and continue through this study. Okay. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the privilege to come together and study your word. And thank you, God, that it's inspired by you. It's God breathed. God, I thank you for that. Thank you for the holy men that that you chose to write your words through. And God, I just have this conviction. And I just know that if it was reported that you were going to be at the Muscoota Middle School, Jesus Christ himself was going to be here next week to speak. We would break our necks to get there to hear what he has to say. But God, I'm so saddened that you have spoke. And you wrote it down for us to read. But we don't take time to hear what you're saying through your written word. God, I pray you'd convict us. Drive us back to your word. Drive us back to your truth. Help us, God, to stand on it because we're living in a culture in a day where it's not easy to stand on your word. It seems like the majority, and that just may be an assumption, but it seems like so many are, are just, they don't care what your word says. Help us as a church to get back to your word, stand on it, and live by it, regardless of what the world is doing. Thank you for this wonderful letter, 1 Corinthians, and the time that we have to, to study. And I pray that you'd bless each one of us as a result of studying your word and help us to grow in our faith towards you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You're living together.